Okay, so we'll clap on three. Okay. Okay, one, two. Wait, on three or after three? One, two, two three. Two, three. Clap. Oh, okay. no, no, no. That was, that was testing it. We're oh. doing it for real now. Okay. One, one two, two, three. Okay. Wow, that was harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, and that's the sound of two tech geniuses trying to record a long-distance podcast. My guest today needs no introduction. He is known for his role as the food and wine expert in the Netflix hit Queer Eye. He can now add Emmy winner, New York Times bestselling author, and people's sexiest reality star to his list of accomplishments. Before Anthony became a household name, he struggled for years in New York as an actor. And in this interview, he tells us how he almost quit the biz and why he almost didn't go back to his Queer Eye callback. Anthony's fame and success came overnight with the release of Queer Eye. So today, we explore some of the challenges of becoming famous and successful quickly. We do a deep dive into what that means, how it changed his life, and any advice that Anthony has for others who embark on the same journey. Enjoy. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Carol. Thanks for being on my podcast. Um, thanks for having me. Um, so this podcast episode is going to be about fame and you are my most famous friend. And so I know that fame, that's not, that's not true. I know we do have a friend who's more famous. Yeah. Um, significantly. I don't know. She would argue that, but anyway, we'll see if I can get her on here as well. And I'll just be like, you're my most famous friend. You should see what she says and make her feel better. Um, so fame and success are two very different things. You can have one without the other, but just for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to use fame interchangeably. So just to give people context, walk me through the process of booking Queer Eye. I know that there's plenty out there that I'm sure you've done this interview a hundred times, but I just want to give people some context. Totally. Um, so basically, I heard about it. It's going to be a very long answer. Okay, keep it short though. Oh, okay. The pro <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, you know what? Okay. The short version is um, ITV, which is a production company, Netflix, which is Netflix, and Scout Productions, who created Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, all got together and they wanted to reboot Queer Eye. A friend of mine recommended that I try for it. And I basically, um, they agreed to meet with me. And so I had a Skype session that was supposed to last 20 to 30 minutes. And it lasted like almost an hour and 40 minutes. Um, and then I got invited to go to LA for chemistry testing with a lot of other people. And then I went back to New York. And this is where it gets kind of gray. I don't know if it was like 10 days. or I think it was like a, a month or something. I got re-invited back to LA to chemistry test again. And then I came back to New York. And then I found out a few days later that I had booked the job. That's the shortest answer I've ever given for that question. Did you have an agent at this point? I did. But not the agent I have now. Okay. And then you just left that agent. You were like, so I was, I, bye, I can get some better. I was better. with a small agency who really dealt with like 
few fives, like under fives and like small bit parts. And they were sending me in for like the same kind of stuff. And so it's weird because I, the reason I didn't pick, I didn't like pick up and tell myself like, oh, I'm just going to go with a bigger agency, which is kind of exactly what I did. But there was a very specific reason. Um, I was friends with, um, you know, Ben. Yeah. So we were actually assistants together. I was Ted Allen's assistant and he was Ted Allen's agent's assistant. So we used to plan our boss's schedules. Literally when Queer Eye was happening, I called Ben because he was the first person, like he was the, the person that like the most powerful agency that I knew that I was comfortable enough with. So he pitched me for the show and he literally became a junior agent that same week. And I was his first client and it was like the, his first contract ever. I am so sorry to do this. My dog has had like really bad diarrhea because I gave her some sketchy salmon from the freezer and she really wants to go outside. I have to take her. I'm so sorry. I have to pause this. It's literally (laughs) going to take two minutes. I really apologize. I'm so sorry. Okay. This is the moment that Antony had to take Neon out for a walk because she had um, diarrhea everywhere. And okay. He's back. Where were we? Um, so I was telling you about what the audition um, process was basically like, and I was mentioning that weirdly enough, when I found out about um, Queer Eye, um, I knew that I needed to work with somebody who was a little closer to the game, somebody who could like really kind of check in and who I really trusted. And I had an okay relationship with my agent at the time, but we weren't that close. It was all very formal. Like we weren't friendly. And for better or worse, I've always had to be very close with the people I work with so that I trust them because I'm not a good team player. Um, And so I contacted Ben, who, like I mentioned, had just become a junior agent at CAA. And and weirdly, as like the world, like aligning planets, all of that stuff, he was given the Netflix account at CAA. So he was responsible for Netflix, which didn't have any unscripted um shows at the time we were their first um and apparently it was an account that like nobody wanted at the time because they weren't doing anything and he decided like great let's go this will be like my first big thing to work on great and just one quick thing tim allen and ted allen are two different people yeah so tim tim allen is a star from home improvement and also santa claus one two three among other projects and ted allen is the original food and wine expert on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Um, He's a journalist, and now he's the host of Food Network's long-running cash cow at this point, Chopped. Okay, great. See, I thought it was Tim Allen for, like, a bit of time. You thought I worked for the home improvement guy? And I was really jealous. Did you know? Did you seriously, though? Yeah. And a lot of people mistake his name, too. It's a thing that happens. (laughs) So at what point in the process of casting did you suspect that you had booked the gig? So there was definitely, like, everyone always talks about, you know, as as actors, about, like, whether an audition goes well or not. There are some casting directors who give you nothing and others who, like, you feel like you're close enough with. You've met them a few times. You feel like they kind of have your back. Um when we were, so there were like all these different rounds during, uh, during chem testing. And then they put me in a room with the four current castmates of the show. Um, and 
they asked us, they were showing like a slideshow of things. It was like a guy wearing Crocs with like ugly tube socks. And they were asking us to comment on them, like typical queer eye stuff. And we all weirdly got along very well and we're like finishing each other's sentences and it was like a really good energy. And then I'm very sensitive and like perceptive of other people around me. And so Dave Collins, who's a sh uh, like the creator of the show, he was like running in circles behind us, just like really excited. And I kind of felt like, oh shit. It's like, I think they, I think this is like a thing that's happening. And I, at this point, up until this point, like I, I auditioned for the show because at that point I was in my early thirties. I'd been auditioning unsuccessfully for about 10 years and I didn't really know where my career was going. I was working in a gallery at that point. I was, if I'm being perfectly honest, I was like slowly starting to give up on auditioning. I was still stubborn and I was determined and I was going to continue doing it. But like I was starting to lose a little bit of hope and I was like, well, how long can I really keep this up? Um, and so, especially with like not having a successful audition or like landing anything meaningful over a period of like almost 10 years. And so when I, when we got sent back to, to, to New York and I was waiting, um, Ali Capriati Grant, um, awesome, awesome girl who um, she's won uh, two Emmys, I believe, for casting for Queer Eye. She would like text me every day. And she was like, okay, so you don't have it and you don't not have it. They're like trying to figure it out, which was kind of like frustrating. But at the same time, I was so happy that she was just keeping me like up to speed on everything that was going on. Cause usually like you do an audition and then you leave and then it's like, you either get a call for a callback or you book it or you don't hear anything at all. Like how often do you actually get feedback? I not once ever received feedback on any single audition. Yeah. What's the hardest it's part about being an actor or hundred percent someone who auditions and an audition is yeah. so different than the work itself. Like it can be so frustrating because you have to get past that hurdle. And I felt like she was like really keeping me in the loop because I knew that she, I felt like she really wanted me to get it. And I felt like mm -hmm. she was kind of, fighting for me. Um, and Ben was doing this. Was that making you more nervous? It actually gave me hope because at that point I realized like, holy crap, I actually want this. Cause I remember when I was, you know, the second time when, uh, when I was going back to LA for the second round of, uh, of chemistry testing, I remember thinking like, crap, I was like, well, if they wanted me that bad, they would have like chosen me the first time. I have to go and audition against other people again. And my partner at the time, I remember he was telling me, I was like, well, if they don't want me, like, what's the point of going? And he would like, wasn't in the industry at all. And he was like, no, he was like, just don't look at it that way because you're going in with like a defeatist attitude. Just why don't you see it as like, they haven't had an opportunity to see you yet or someone hasn't had an opportunity to see you yet. So just go and give it your all. And then another friend of mine who's like, I call friends and like mentors a lot. And um, my, uh, my mentor, um, Klaus, I was talking to him and I was like, I don't know if this is the right move for my career because I'm a scripted actor and I don't want to be on a reality show. And what he was telling me was like, well, none of that is like really matters because he's like, your only goal is to show up and to be cool and to be yourself. Cause whether you get it or not is ultimately not really up to you. And whether it's the 
a really like a bad move for your career, you're going to have to make the mistake anyway, because whether the show is a hit or whether it's a total flop, he's like, it's always better to make the mistake, which I get told and I hear all the time, but I'd never really kind of like experienced that or like was really in a position where I was having to like make that choice. And I know that I would have lived in regret if I didn't go for it, but it was like, I was really, I was, I was very torn. Like I didn't really, I wasn't convinced that it was something that I wanted to do because it was never part of my plan. Mm -hmm. Also your attitude had really shifted. Um, I noticed it as a friend from the outside. I would say a few months before Queer Eye happened, you had completely changed your outlook on things. You had thrown yourself back in the game. Something had shifted inside of you, whether or not you knew it, but I felt like I was talking to someone else. Before Queer Eye came about? Yeah, I would say about a few months. Wow. Oh, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. So after you are told that you have it, have the role on Queer Eye, what happens next? Do you meet with Netflix executives? Like, what happens? Like, what do you know? Do you have to sign an NDA? What, when did you start shooting? So we, I think an NDA came pretty quickly. And then I think within two weeks, I was in Atlanta. And I was there for five months. Wow. So in those two weeks... How, I mean, you didn't know that the show was going to be as successful, but how did you prepare for it? Did you change anything in your life? Did you like clean up your Instagram? Did you work out a lot? Did you try and eat healthy? Like, what did you do in those two weeks? Or did you just enjoy it? I was pretty vain even before the show. So I was already working out and taking care of myself for the most part. But um, like the real shift when I really changed my life is after actually the first season came out and I saw myself and I saw what the perception was of me and what people were saying and what my, I hate this word, but like what my brand was and how I was coming across to the public. Because the way that I see myself is completely different than the way that the world sees me or that fans of Queer Eye see me. So that's when that. So how did you, what was what was the shift? I think, I mean, definitely seeing yourself. Like I used to, like even taking photos, I used to spend, I used to be very insecure about certain things. Like I would take it personally if I like had a photo taken of me. And I, like, I don't have a double chin, but at a certain angle, it's like you have this like skin here and it looks like you have like a double chin. And you have to like stick your head out and you put your head out to like an angle or something or like the way that I was on camera, like my head was always very forward. I always look like I'm, I'm waiting for someone to say something like I'm listening intently. And I realized like, oh, like what all my acting teachers at the neighborhood playhouse told me. And like when we did Alexander um, technique and it was always like, keep your head floating freely. And I like finally understood that. And I was like, oh, like that's what my head looks. Oh, my eyes bulge when I get really excited. And I got like super like hyper self-conscious about it. But at the same time, because I didn't want to watch the episodes, but I forced myself to because I wanted to see the way edits were made because we're working in unscripted too. Like you'll shoot a scene for three hours and it'll get compressed to a, a minute and a half or two minutes, not even kidding. Um, so I, I kind of was interested to see like the way that, you know, the recipes, like I didn't, no one told me that it was going to be edited down to one recipe. Like I was doing three recipes with every single hero. And then they were editing it down and like taking away this like beautiful flank steak that I did 
and just keeping the guacamole instead. And I was like, why did I spend so much time? Where like, I had no idea. It was like the wild, wild west. And so, but the good thing that happened with that is that I kind of, because at first I took it so personally when they would take something that I thought was really meaningful or like a really important cooking technique. And I learned that like none of it is precious and most of it gets cut out anyway. So just like be yourself and don't try to be funny or smart in any given moment and trust that the editors are going to find you at your best. That said, on the first couple of seasons, we didn't have a food producer. We didn't, I didn't have a culinary assistant. I was doing everything by myself and a lot of edits were made um, that I really wasn't happy with. They made it seem like the recipe was a lot simpler or that I was coming off a certain way, particularly in terms of food. In terms of how they portrayed me when I had a conversation, I was really pleased. But with the food, I had to go to bat and basically be like, no, like we need to get somebody on board who's going to help. Or like at the end of every single episode, I'm now going to have to record every single step. And you guys have to include every single ingredient because if somebody's making this, I don't want to look like an idiot. Like now suddenly I'm thinking about my reputation, which I've right. never thought about before. So it just completely shifted the way that I looked at it and seeing yourself so much, suddenly you just don't care. And you're like, oh, fine. Like I'm not going to focus all the time about having my like head back because it's going to take me out of what I'm doing in the conversation that I'm having with, with, with this person in a certain scene. Mm -hmm. And when would you say you started getting quote unquote famous? Like at what point was it? When the series was announced, was it after the first series came out? Essentially, I want to know, like, when did people see you as a celebrity and start sending you free shit? Oh, um, the first, I call them like electricity moments. Um, I was at my friend's restaurant um, uptown and I was, this was right after, well, after we finished filming the two seasons, we weren't really allowed to work or do anything. And I wasn't going to go back to my gallery job. I wasn't going to go back to the restaurant. And I had a few months where I just basically had downtime. So I decided I was going to learn Italian. So I was sitting at my friend's restaurant and I was uh, doing Italian um, lessons with my, with my teacher, Gaetano. And we're sitting there. And that was the day that um, Entertainment Weekly was releasing who the new Fab Five were. And so I, my Instagram account, I think I had like 780 or 880 followers um, and just like silly, ridiculous photos. And the announcement happened at like 12 p.m. Eastern, I think. It was literally in the middle of my session with him. And then my phone, I still had notifications on on Instagram. And then my phone just started glowing. And I think we gained like 40 or 50,000 followers in that day alone. And I was just like holy crap I'm like who are all these people like what is happening and then the show came out and it was a new wave of that where it was like at least a hundred thousand followers a week and that just went on for like about i don't know how to calculate but up until where i'm at now basically and like that's when it just kind of started to i had a manager at the time and um and i just started getting emails from my manager with like a list of like, okay, so this arrived at the office. Like, can we send this to your house? Um, sometimes they were really nice things. And sometimes there was literally a palette, like a full on palette of oranges that someone sent. And I was just thinking like, that's just incredibly wasteful. Um, and sometimes it was really cool stuff and like customized things to like skincare to just really weird things. And that's when I, like I had no, I'd never really 
thought about that part and it just it got crazy at the at the time i was living in like a 600 square foot studio in brooklyn there was literally one room and it was just packed with shit so yeah i wanted to know at what point did you start making money was it I mean, obviously you got paid for your season, but money that you could feel relaxed to not have to have a second job. Yeah. So it wasn't there with the first season because we were the first unscripted show on Netflix. And look, it was, it was, it was good money. I'm not, you know, saying that it was terrible, but it certainly um, wasn't enough to kind of like change my life in any meaningful way. The first was when I started to basically be introduced to, to the world of endorsements. And the first one that I got, um, Haynes approached um, my agency with, uh, with, a camp, with an underwear campaign and asked for like an Instagram post and a little bit of press. And that's when I learned like, oh, wow, this is like a whole part of the business that I didn't even think about. And so I said yes to that. And... Then a few came after that. I was saying yes to everything because I just didn't know how long this was going to last. And I was like the whole concept of like 15 minutes of fame, like you don't know when it's going to go away. And then after saying yes to everything, that just kind of then Ben basically rightfully started telling me like, you know, there's the power of no. And if you keep on saying yes to the small stuff, you're going to be less likely to get the bigger things people in the industry talk. And so then it kind of, we kind of would start having conversations with my endorsements agent, Steph, who I'm still with, who I love, and Ben um, and my manager at the time. And just like, I would kind of get everybody's advice. I would sleep on it. I'm very, I'm like, I'm a slow burn. I'm not impulsive and I'm not very quick for better or worse. Like I like to, I need to sleep on something before I'm going to say yes or no to something. And it's really hard when, you know, you're used to making money as a waiter or working a gallery job to suddenly you're in this like whole other level. It's like, you're saying no to a lot of money and I, you want to be sure that you're making the right decision. So I would kind of like take my time with it. And so would you say that you're used to this new landscape of your life or are you still completely awed by it? Definitely completely awed by it still. It hits me randomly where I'll just like be thinking about something or I'll look at something and be like, holy shit, like how did, how did we get here? But I'm a little, I'm definitely, I have gotten a lot better at saying no to things where I'm not as, I was never really driven by, like I'm not, a, I'm not driven by money. I'm not saying that I don't like it, um, but I'm more driven by like fun, exciting work and like things that I'm proud of. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like I'm, it's, it's the work that really turns me on. So let's say that you are at an event like the Emmys, which you've gone a couple times and you're surrounded by people like Brad Pitt. Wait, does he go to the Emmys? I don't even know. No. Okay. So not Brad Pitt. He doesn't, Pitt. but there's some good ones. Okay. There's some good ones there. Do you feel like you belong there or do you feel like an imposter or maybe everyone else feels the same way? Like, what do you think? So the first Emmys that we went to, I remember it was like, it was exactly what you expect it to be like. Like you get picked up at the airport in a car and they take you to your really nice hotel and your stylist meets you and the groomer comes and then your manager shows up with your outfit that a certain designer 
you know, like let you wear for the night and it gets like last minute tailored and altered and everything. And then you show up and I was like, I remember being so overwhelmed because it was kind of, it felt like um, an elementary school or a high school reunion where I was like, oh my gosh, like all these faces I haven't seen in a long time. And I'm like, wait, I don't know these people. I've just like seen them in TV and film all the time. And with me, I get very overwhelmed. And I kind of get very like jaw droppy, especially with people whose like careers I really respect and just admire. And then the thing was because, you know, Queer Eye was definitely like there was a lot of electricity because I think a new season had just come out as the Emmys were coming out as well. And we were nominated for in a lot of categories. And, um, and so I would like try to, you know, drum up the courage to go speak to somebody um, and then they would come up to me instead and cut me off and tell me about the show and how they watched it with their kids. And so then it was just this flip and it was like, no, no, wait, I'm the one who's excited. Like I'm the one who's supposed to tell you how great you are. So they kind of, a lot of famous people made it a lot easier for me that day. Cause I didn't, you know, they got to be like the fanboys and the fangirls, and I didn't have to deal with that, but I still had definitely had some of my moments, but it was just overwhelming. Cause you're just like looking at everybody and then the Emmys are live. So trying to get everyone to sit down, that was the funniest thing when they're like making the announcement and you just have like, not naming names, but like just some like really high profile people who are like, I'm going to sit down when I want to sit down. And they're just like saying hi to everybody. And they're walking around like it's a school cafeteria, except you're in this massive amphitheater and everyone's just like dressed to the nines. And then it starts. And then you're like, you know, when you go to a play and you like check your phone, oh, I miss plays. You know, like when you check your phone obsessively and you're like, I want to make sure that my phone is on silence so that it doesn't ring because then you don't want to be that person. Then you're like, holy shit, like this is being like telecast around the world and it's live. Like, what if my phone goes off? And you like kind of freak out. It was very, it was, it was very overwhelming. And even I think it was the second Emmys that I was actually able to just really enjoy it more and just not be in complete shock but it was still kind of shocking. Who oh, was? I didn't even, oh. Oh, I didn't even, I, I didn't even talk about the part of like when you arrive and it's hot as hell and you're wearing a tux that doesn't breathe and there are no air conditioners and you're literally, it's just like line ups of press. And so the way that it's set up is really weird because you have to do all of these interviews and be on. And our first time, like we were just cutting each other off because it's five of us type A's extroverts for the most part and now we kind of get our flow and like we take turns when we go but it was just like a complete mess we're sweating like crazy and then when you're done doing like literally 10 or 15 interviews talking about how grateful you are to be there and um doing that then suddenly you're asked to stand in front of a carpet with like a hundred photographers and cameras are just flashing and you're sweating like crazy and you're just like trying to like dab each other to make sure that you all look good and it's just it's like it's it's a shit show who um who do you th- who would you say would make you still feel starstruck who would still make me feel starstruck i still haven't learned oh it's like embarrassing to say but i am i still get very my voice cracks and i get a really like shaky but i've gotten a lot better um even though i've met her um uh a few times at this point um, is uh, is Jen Aniston. Yeah, that makes sense. Because she's just because she's just so beautiful, and she's so comfortable, 
and there's like this there's a strength to her there's something about like like strong women for me who like i really admire it's just i get i get like really like <laughs> it's like a weird like a schoolboy thing and i get really <laughs> awkward and i just like try to focus on them and i try to like keep my i try to keep my face relaxed because i get very expressive that's my that's my thing that i have to watch out for what would you say um was your biggest misconception of fame before you became famous my biggest misconception of fame was i think this is this may not make sense but like i really thought i was going to control when i was going to be recognized like i really thought that it was going to be like okay when i'm working i get it they're like people who want to take selfies and all of that but when i'm not working in my personal life that i'm just going to be able to be like a slob and just like cuz i can i i can be like pretty quiet and a little antisocial and introverted some days especially like mornings like it takes me a while to get there i need a few coffees but the fact that it was like 24/7 was extremely overwhelming so like let's say you have to run an errand you have to go mail a letter i don't know if people do that anymore but like would you dress yourself up to go run a quick errand just in case someone wanted a selfie with you or something definitely not i think the first 6 months i kept on forgetting and i remember leaving my apartment and i would forget that i was now like a public person and then someone would stop me and say something and i would always be like oh this is, must be someone that i know and then i'm like oh no this is like a queer i think i'd be like holy crap right whoa or i would like wake up in the morning and if i thought about it i'd be like holy shit like things are different now um and so that was kind of it was kind of like and again my 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 mentor friend klaus who like prepared me for the audition he's been friends with a lot of people um sort of pre-fame and post and and what that experience is like and he actually related it to he was like you're going to see it's kind of like losing your virginity once it's gone it's gone like you don't get it back and it may be really great and maybe really awkward it's probably going to be like all of those things in one but he was like you have to accept it's like a loss like your private life is just it's just not, it's just not a thing are you always i i've watched you be so generous with people who want like a quick selfie with you or just want to talk to you is there ever a time when you say no i i i don't want to do that right now yes i do have rules um one of them is when i'm eating or if i'm spending time with someone I certainly have had a couple of instances where I was really caught off guard and where I just get kind of overwhelmed. I've never I've never like sworn or yelled at anybody. I certainly have had moments where I have this thing where like I I hunch my shoulders when I get really uncomfortable and I would think that that was just like me showing myself as being shy, but I realize that that's kind of manipulative because you're making the person who's coming up to you uncomfortable. and for them it's like a moment and i also have to remember that like sometimes when i had this pet peeve at the beginning someone would just come up and not even say hi or just like grab my shoulder people are very touchy with a lot of us on the show because we're so affectionate so they feel like they can they can touch us there's no kind of boundary and where they'll just grab me and be like i need a photo and what i would tell myself like i would take that really personally and then i'd be like hi my name is anthony 
what's your name? And I realized like, that's kind of shitty. Like that's not the right way to go about it. And what I realized was like, that's the best that they're capable of in that moment. I have to remind myself that we're on a very emotional show and it makes people feel all the feels. And sometimes they just don't know how to speak to a public person and they're just really overwhelmed and they're just doing their best. And that's what I kind of try to remind myself. So I've gotten, I am like happy, like I certainly have gotten a lot better with it. But if I'm sitting down and I'm having a meal and somebody comes up and it's like, hey, really nice to meet you. I'm sorry, but I, I really can't right now. I'm, I'm, I'm having a conversation with my friend or whoever, whoever I'm with. Mm-hmm. What, um, what piece of advice would you give to someone who's about to blow up? Ooh. I would definitely do a mental list of your true friends, of the people that really matter, like your ride or dies, because you're going to get summoned by all kinds of really fascinating people whose work you've admired and musicians and actors and people in the entertainment industry. And I've met some incredible people who've become close friends who I, who I speak to regularly, probably as much as I do with people that I, that I knew before. But it's so important to try to and it's so, it's so hard to do, like it's really complicated and sometimes I'm really good at it and sometimes I really suck. Especially at the beginning, I really sucked because I was really excited by all the bright lights. Um, but don't ever forget who like those, like who those people who were with you before it all were. And the people who you can speak to and not feel like you're gonna be judged, who you can like vent to very openly. I'm lucky because I have for castmates that we all have experienced the same thing and we can speak very openly to each other and we know we're not, we, we don't judge each other. That's one thing we're really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we judge each other sometimes on like little silly things, but like on the big things, like we, we get it, you know, we're like in this weird, like, it's like the weird boy band phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And how do you make new friends? Like how do you let people into your inner circle now? Do you have some kind of way of like, filtering or knowing whether or not they want to be friends with you or with the Anthony Perovsky public person? So I have people in my life who are very um, blunt and more direct and they kind of remind me that I need to check other people's intentions because I am inherently naive and I love people. I love getting to know people. And so I sometimes will, will forget to, to question others' intentions. But at the same time, I kind of, like, I'm the type of person who will trust somebody inherently from the beginning unless they give me a reason not to. It's not kind of like a, you have to win my affection or my respect. I'm not one of those. And I never was. And I probably never will be. So I try to be a little more careful. I try to be a little more guarded with, like, not telling them everything about myself you know, the first time that I meet them, but I'm also, that's hard for me to do. Cause I just like love, I don't like talking about the weather. Like I love meaningful interactions. I'm very like quality over quantity. I'm not really good at it is what I'm trying to say. It's like, I, I really suck at it. You've got me to tell you who's an asshole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, do you ever fear that it could all be just taken away one day? Every single Day. Really? Yeah. Um, certainly, like, there are a lot of things that I'm working on and projects and things. Like, I always have to have three things lined up. But as soon as, like, if I'm done with an endorsement and there's, like, 
there are these moments sometimes where I don't have other endorsements lined up, especially since I'm doing a lot less now, which has been one of the hardest things in just like saying no and really picking things that I truly believe in. Um, that's a really scary thing. And it's something that, you know, it's Ben, who's my, he's my point person at CAA. So I have like a team of agents, but he's like my go-to and I check in with him for whether it's a speaking engagement or an endorsement or a show idea, like everything. Um, I told him that I was doing this podcast and he was only comfortable because it was you. Good. <laughs> and, um, and so wait, the question was, um, are you, do I, yeah. Do I ever fear that? Yeah. So I, I do have like regular calls with him where I'm like, all right, so I'm going to do this thing. Now you need to tell me that everything is going to be okay. Cause I'm scared shitless and I'm kind of terrified that like, I don't have anything lined up and he's like, just, just, Calm down. This is what you've done in the past six months. This is the stuff that we're working on. Just chill. I'm like, okay. And then I get kind of kind of reminded. But it's still, yeah, it's still, it's definitely, it's definitely terrifying. And it's so weird because it's like I get excited for time off, especially with COVID, is has has really, you know, kind of like put that in because during like quiet moments, it's kind of like, oh, I can get in touch with my feelings, as my therapist suggests, or like listen to sad music or like watch good films but then if i don't if i don't have something lined up then it's panic i i get i i i get full like full panic mode how do you handle bad press like or or what has what has been said what is something that has been said about you that has hurt your feelings Ooh, um lots of things i think at the beginning when the show first came out um i got a lot of uh i got a lot of love there was a a publication or whatever it was the new yorker and they did a beautiful like a piece that was like a total like it just it fed my ego i was like full to the point of like where i had food in my throat and i was so happy and ted allen sent me the article and my dad um even sent it to me that someone sent it to him and i was just thinking like wow i've made it and then literally a week later, there was an opinion piece in the same publication by someone who just put me on full blast and just questioned my choices of what I was teaching these people to make. And it started this debate about like, he's made, his recipes are way too simple. And some people were coming up to my defense and saying like, yeah, but these people don't know how to cook. Like, what do you expect him to do? But of course I only listen to the negative stuff. Um, so it, I kind of had to look at, what I could control and what I couldn't control. What I could control was I had a talk with our exec. I told her what I wasn't happy with, with the first season. And she said, we were going to fix that for the second season. And then there were other things like I came in for when we were filming seasons three and four, when we were in Kansas city and the first dish that I wanted to make, I don't even remember what it was. It was like a cassoulet or something like really laborious and complicated and pretentious. And she took me to the side and she was like, no, this is you answering bad press and trying to like show your skills. Like that's not what this is about. Also, you're really going to overwhelm the hero because he's literally eating sandwiches every day. So we're not doing that, but I get what your intention is. And like, you just need to, you just need to cool it. And then I decided to write a cookbook so that I can show everybody that I actually do know how to cook. 
if I'm perfectly honest, I mean, I want, you know, I, I've wanted to, to, to write a book, but that definitely was part of it. Um, it was very like revenge is the best. It like revenge is the best. Wait, success is the best revenge type of mantra. But then I realized like that was like McDonald's, like you feel good for five minutes and then it wears off and then you just want more success. So it was like, okay, I don't want to go down that path because that's just going to be a slippery slope. So I used to read everything because I told myself if I read the good stuff, I have to read the bad stuff. And now I hardly read anything. I'm actually really good at like not engaging in comments, not looking at DMs. The first week I really sucked at that. Or the first year, I, I would say I really sucked mm-hmm. at that. So, okay. So things like People Magazine or like Us Weekly, they'll say stuff like, sources close to Meghan Markle say, I don't know, she eats bananas. Is that real? Is there mm-hmm. actually a real source or are they just making all that shit up? My understanding is that there is somebody who they trust enough to put the piece up. Um, what they tend to do is like sometimes publications, um, I'm not going to say which, but a lot of them will like, or almost all of them, like they'll contact your, your publicity team and be like, Hey, we heard about this. Or like the point of having a good publicist is so that they have relationships with these people so you can get ahead of it. So you can be prepared for whatever that is, whether you eat bananas or you're deathly allergic to them. Um, so then you can put a post of, of you eating a banana with a little bit of cinnamon and being like, yeah, I do love bananas. <laughs> um, has anyone ever sold you out for a story? I don't know. Oh, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get me canceled. <laughs> um, oh, I know what I'll tell them. I'll tell them that sometimes when you sleep, you make zombie noises. Okay, first of all, those are night terrors. And that's like past trauma that comes and creeps up on you. And it's like, it's a thing. And I remember exactly when it happened when it was in Brooklyn and you thought I went to the fridge because I needed, um, I need to drink something sugary whenever I wake up from night terrors. And I went to the fridge and you thought that I was going, because I made this noise that was like a, because it's like a sleep paralysis thing too. And you thought that, um, that I was walking to the kitchen to get a knife, but I just went to get, um, oh yeah, it was like a raspberry. Yeah, no, I was laying in bed assuming that it was my last night alive because you're going to sleep stab me. It's a terrifying noise. I know, but I, I do have a lot less of that now. I think because I've been meditating, I don't get the the night terrors as much and I don't eat meat after um, 7 PM. And I almost don't eat any red meat, which has actually significantly decreased my night terrors and sleep paralysis. Okay. I'm glad you don't make those noises anymore. It sounds like two zombies arguing. Oh, it's terrible. I've heard it because I, I do the noise to wake myself up because I'm in between sleep, sleeping and dreaming. Okay. Well, I'm going to sell that to <laughs> us weekly or whatever. We um, just did. <laughs> we just did. Um, what do you miss most about your life before fame? The simplicity. There was something nice about the routine. And I was kind of reminded of that Um during COVID where, you know, at first everything kind of shut down and I was in Austin and we weren't working and I would like make scrambled eggs in the morning, started fostering a dog. Like I was doing the same things every day and I kind of like built up this routine and I love the craziness of 
when things are really busy and you have all these projects and you're doing press for different things and you're about to get on an interview and literally a minute before I have to text my assistant, assistant and be like, is this about the endorsement, the cookbook or Queer Eye? And she reminds me and like tells me what I'm doing. And it's like, I kind of like that because then it feels like, yeah, like we're a machine. We're moving and doing things. But at the same time, to just, I feel like I had a lot more time to just be with my feelings and to process things before. Whereas, especially the first two years, because now it's like, what, three years since Queer Eye came out? The first two years, we had all these successes and all these like moments of accomplishment. And I kept on thinking like, oh, like I can't even enjoy one because the next one just comes and then you forget about it. And then you're like, holy crap, like we were up on the Emmy stage two weeks ago and now we're doing like on Jimmy Fallon. And it's like, wait, like I just want to enjoy it. And I want to like hold on to every single little memory as, as, as best as I can. So I started writing them down. That was uh, Tan's advice so that I could remember all of it. But um. I do, I, I, I miss, it's weird. This is like, this is like a weird fame question as well. Um, uh, uh, what, what's the, the lead singer of Radiohead? I don't know. I'm not cool. <laughs> anyway, the lead singer of Radiohead, one of my favorite Instagram accounts is underscore, underscore niche. And they do like inspirational, like sayings from like all these different icons with these beautiful black and white photos. And what he was saying was um, when I walk into a room, I want everyone to see me, but no one to notice me. And it's like this weird, like, it, and I used to have this feeling of like, oh, like one day I would like to be recognized for my work. Like I wanted to be seen, which is like such an embarrassing, like narcissistic thing to admit. It's a human thing. But I kind of like miss walking in and not thinking like, is someone going to come up to me? Cause I'm like listening to this, you know, Taylor just released like her, her hidden pond recordings of her folklore album. And I've been like really listening to that aggressively. And when I like walk into a shop and if I'm like waiting in line for a coffee or the grocery store and I'm like really into the song and like really paying attention to the lyrics and then I'm just like, oh, is somebody going to come up to me? And some days I can kind of like feel it. Or if somebody's walking towards me, it's kind of like, are they going to talk to me? Or are they going to, are they, are they not? And I kind of get angsty. Well, so yeah. So you are very kind to people that come up to you. And so I've watched you go from this unemployed actor to someone on billboards everywhere. And I have to say that in my eyes, you've grown to be an even more kind and generous person than you were before you were famous. So how come you've become a better human, but when some people get famous, they become assholes? Or is that just a myth? Are people, do they just stay the same? I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Um, first of all, thank you for saying that. That's very sweet. Um, I think that if people are jerks when they become famous, in my experience, they were probably like that before, except that now people tell them no less and they think they can just get away with it. And I also think that there are people who experience fame and they think that that's the way that they're supposed to behave. Like they think that they're supposed to be divas and be demanding 
but I think the strong, like the, the thing that I, cause I always try to see the humanity in anything, even if somebody is acting like, you know, a total nightmare. And I always think like, that's probably stemming from like a really deep insecurity. If somebody feels like, like whatever way that they're acting, I try to imagine the other end of the spectrum. And I try to think about like, that's probably how they actually feel. It's kind of like, um, have you heard of Susan Batson? She's Nicole Kidman's coach. Okay. And she wrote a really good book on acting. And she writes about public and private persona. And so she talks about um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Catch Me If You Can. And he didn't get the love from his father when he was young. So the way that he acts with women and the way that he acts with like the feds who are after him is that like nobody's going to have a hold of him because like all he wants is mm-hmm. to have that love. Does that make sense? So if somebody acts like a total jerk or is rude or is disrespectful or is acting like they're king shit, it's probably because they don't feel really good about themselves in reality, which doesn't justify their actions, but I think it helps us understand it so we can continue to see them as humans. Right. What would you want people to know about fame? Is it as fun as it looks or is it just a bizarre, a bizarre existence? It's a very bizarre existence knowing that like somebody can come up to you and know a lot of things about your life. Like my birthday a year ago, I was just walking on Broadway and this really sweet girl was just like walking by with her dog and was like, happy birthday, Anthony. And then just kept on walking. (laughs) And I just kind of stood there in the street and I just started laughing and I was like, that's, really like really sweet thank you for wishing that but like she didn't want any interaction or anything and she just kept on walking it was like someone in my hood who like i knew except i didn't but she knew me it's a very strange thing to have people know things about you and you know nothing about them um weird is definitely the word there's nothing natural about it yes there are it's 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 just such a mixed bag is it awesome to get to a restaurant and know that you're going to get like a nice corner table. Like, sure. That's really great. Especially for somebody who loves to go out and eat not as much these days, but, but then there's also like, you know, mornings where I'm taking the dog to the dog park and I'm wearing like sweatpants that I haven't washed in four days with like my busted sneakers. And I just like throw a coat on and I'm like wearing my mask, but I haven't brushed my teeth yet. So I have like horrible coffee breath and, somebody comes up to you really close and then they just want to like strike up a conversation. And it's, then it's like, Oh, like I was, you know, like, and, and you're, you're grateful for that for sure. But it's like, I just kind of wish I'd brush my teeth and <laughs> made a little bit of an effort. Right. <laughs> you know? So, so people literally like Jennifer Aniston follow you on Instagram. Like how do you keep yourself and your ego in check? Also, Haley Bieber doesn't follow you on Instagram. I thought that was a bit weird. She doesn't. No, is that rude? But I've never, I've never met her. I don't know her. I don't know. I just assume you guys all follow each other. Wow. No. Well, thanks for doing the research. Yeah, I had to go through a four and a half million people on Instagram to make sure <laughs> that Haley Bieber doesn't follow you. Well, Jen and I like met, and we've had conversations, and we've like hung out, so that kind of makes even with somebody like that who some anybody who has like a really massive career and following 
my goal is I've met a lot of people who've like really intimidated me at first and I would kind of be terrified because they were a concept to me. They were, all they were was their work. And so what I try to do is I pick this up from Tan actually. He asks very personal questions right off the bat and it really throws people off. Like what? I'm much, just like, like what's your, what's your dating life like? Like what's your relationship? Like what's your, what was your upbringing? Like, like he just gets right into it. And so I've started. You're not afraid. You're not afraid that that's going to offend them or want to push no, you away. I'm a little more Canadian, so I'm like not as direct and blunt with it. Tan is also very charming, and he gets away with it. And he's not like there's nothing like scheming or Machiavellian about what he's doing, and he's just genuinely curious. And so I usually start by saying something really self-deprecating or embarrassing about myself, and that kind of like disarms the situation a little bit. And then I just kind of like, I, I try to learn who they are as a person so that I can see human traits in them so that I'm not looking at them with like a halo floating on a cloud. I just try to, I, I just try to see the person that they are. I think that's the goal. So you take away like the image of, you know, Rachel from friends, obviously. Right. And then remove that filter and just see her as Jen. Yeah, as Jen, who like loves her shelter pups and making pizza and like, you know, like just somebody who's like loves to hang out with friends and is like fiercely loyal from what I've learned. And just, you know, you just try to see those parts. But like with whoever it is, it's like we all have our human traits or like what their interests are, what their hobbies are, like things that they like to do that aren't part of this, you know, part of their, their work. Right. Do you ever feel jealousy? in your career? Mm. Like I imagine when you get famous, you, everything's awesome. It's, I, th I guess this is a, maybe a part of jealousy, but I did, I've gotten better at it, but it does hit me every once in a while. It's the compare and despair, particularly with people who are in, um, in the food world and with my castmates at first, like when we started getting endorsements and it was like, Oh, so-and-so got an endorsement for this. Like, why didn't I get asked to do that? And so then I call Ben and I'm like, how come I didn't get one? And then he's there to like put me in my place immediately and be like, stay in your lane. This is what you're working on. If you compare yourself to others, it's one thing to look and like to study what other people are doing with their careers and like, get inspired by something and want to do something like that or, or figure out what your own version of it is. But it, it's a really slippery slope when it's kind of like, how come I didn't get a Doritos campaign or whatever it is, you know? I think, yeah, I try to look at it more as like a study and like how, and sometimes I'll like look and be like, oh yeah, because I don't really, I, I don't actually want to be doing what that person is doing. I don't think I get inherently jealous, but I'm like, I'm very hard on myself about like, if I see somebody doing a lot, then I'm like, oh, I'm not working hard enough. Cause there's always somebody better looking, harder working with better work ethic. Who's just like better in general. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be somebody, but I like that because right. it keeps me on my toes. Right. I don't like to be too comfortable. So speaking of comfort, you have four and a half million followers on Instagram. Do you ever get really nervous right before you post something? Oh, I used to, I used to like, I'd spend like 40 minutes figuring out the photo and like, 
I just kind of stopped caring. Well, not, not that I don't put effort into what I post, but at first, like I would have to po do a post every single day because I thought that like that was incredibly important to like keep the numbers up. And I started looking at my statistics of like the impressions versus, um, and if it would like drop a few million a week, I would freak out and be like, oh my gosh, I'm irrelevant and nobody cares anymore. But I just kind of stopped. My thing is I just try to keep it real and honest as possible, even if it's an endorsement, just try to figure out how I can keep it as organic as possible and just try to be a little clever, a little self-deprecating, a little silly, and just not take it too seriously. And I always try to check my intentions before I'm posting. Oh, that's a good tip. That's a really important one. Like if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling like kind of shitty when I wake up in the morning, and very compare and disparity and like my career is about to completely disappear. That's probably not the best day to post like a beach shirtless photo to make myself feel better because that's like fake happiness. It's going to make you feel good for five minutes when you see those numbers go up. But then like what happens after that? Like that's pointless. I try to be more like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a little more like it's like pinball or like a slot machine. Like I just kind of like, I don't think about it as much anymore. Okay. Um, what do you think gives someone longevity in the business? Ooh. What do I think gives someone longevity? I think it's important to have somebody, whether it's a manager, an agent, a publicist, or even like a fellow actor friend, you continually have conversations about the different things that you want to do so that you don't rest on your laurels, whatever the success of like your last thing is that you're always kind of looking ahead at what's interesting to you, what you're really passionate about so that you continue to love it so that it continues to drive you. Cause I realize like those ideas in my mind, they're just these like internal monologues that I have. But as soon as I, have a conversation with somebody and I get the position that I'm in. Like I'm, you know, with a fantastic agency and like they set up meetings. If I want to set up an animal sanctuary, they're going to set that up. I've never wanted to set up an animal sanctuary, but I would one day maybe, but that was just a really bad example. Um, but it's important to continually like have those conversations and constantly ask yourself like what it is that you want to be doing that's creative, whether it's a table read looking, reading a play over with friends, doing a short film, doing a documentary, doing a web series, whatever it is, just to constantly be thinking about like the next thing and where you want to be always kind of looking ahead and having, and being open-minded and having different things that you want to do as well. Like I wish I were more open-minded when I was auditioning unsuccessfully for scripted series. I should have been coming up with food content and I should have been posting more like food videos on like YouTube or something since it was something that I really loved doing. I was really stubborn and I was like, no, I want to be an actor and I'm not going to be in an unscripted show and I'm not going to work with food because that's like personal to me when I could have been like nurturing that a lot earlier on and doing different things. Like I always thought I just had to do one thing and stay in one lane, which is like, I think that's like, that's so, it's so limiting. Mm -hmm. Um. Is there anything that you want your fans to know about you? Is there anything I want my fans to know about me? 
I guess that's a really tough question. And I actually don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I think I just want them to know that I'm really doing my best. So I think that's what we all want, you know? And we all, all of us are really doing our best. And like we make mistakes and we say things that we're not supposed to say and get in trouble for it. And it's like make poor choices with work sometimes. And not every single thing we do is going to be a wild success all the time, but just like, I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this as well. Like sometimes you hear something bad happen to a famous person and you're like really entertained by it and you love to see them. Taylor was talking about this in the, in the long pond sessions about like how famous and successful people, like you watch them fall and everything. And you forget that there's like a person there who's like struggling and who's like really trying to figure it out. Whether you're a public person or like you lead a more private life, whatever that is, like we're all, we're all doing our own version of that. Except that some of us just have a lot more eyeballs on us. Right. Okay. And the most important question um, of today is how do I make my veggie stir fry taste less bland? It just tastes like a mash of vegetables. <laughs> this whole podcast is a ruse. I just wanted to know how to do this one thing. Do you really eat veggie stir fry? Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to like eat less meat, eat more veggies. Okay. So you're crowding your pan. Go on. So people think that a stir fry is like, just throw a bunch of stuff into a pan and wait till it's ready. Vegetables cook at different temperatures under different heat. Okay. I do know that, but it still just tastes like a bunch of mushy vegetables. If they're mushy, then you have too much moisture in your pan and you're crowding your vegetables in your pan. Just like when you're roasting veggies, they need to be spaced out. Your Brussels sprouts should not be touching each other on a pan. If you have to cook them in three batches, be patient and do that so that they can actually crisp along the edges and you can cook your Brussels sprouts, take them out of the pan, put in your onions, put in your pepper, whatever veggies it is that you're using, your softer vegetables should go in last, keep them all in a bowl and then put them back in a pan under really high heat. And don't forget to flavor. Don't forget to like use herbs too. And you have to season every step of the way as well. Like what? Like in a stir fry, I would probably, since that's like a little more Eastern, Typically, I would probably mix like basil and cilantro with mint. And those are all soft herbs. So you want to throw those in at the very end. You don't want to cook with mint because it's going to brown and it's going to lose its flavor. Rosemary, on the other hand, not that you would use that for a stir fry, but that's a hard herb and it needs to soften and it needs a little more time. And always hit it with acid at the end. Okay. Whether it's lemon or lime juice or lemon zest like or lime zest mm -hmm. and season every step of the way. Like with salt, you mean, or like with salt? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try that tonight and report back. Give them space. Give the veggies space. That's how they crisp up along along the edges. Okay. Um. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh. Yeah. You're so much. I mean, I I know you, and a lot of people know you. You know, just from Queer Eye, but I'm sure people will really appreciate the, in appreciate the insight that you gave 
about, you know, some of the things that have happened to you and how you've moved through them. That's really sweet. Okay, I'm going to stop recording. (laughs) Thanks again to Anthony for taking the time and being so generous and open about his journey into fame. Next week, join me on 10-1 the podcast with agents Emma Laird from the Gary Goddard Agency and Michael White from The Characters. We're going to discuss all the classic pitfalls that actors can fall into when trying to launch their careers, and they're going to give us some tips on what to do to become a healthy and successful actor. See you next week. <laughs>